Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. You know, one thing is true with God. There are no little people in His eyes. Everybody is important, and He loves everybody the same. Dr. Tom Schreiner, a great scholar, once wrote about this. And he mentioned that uh, there was once a commentary on the Gospel of Luke called No Little People. (laughs) There really are no small people in God's eyes. And, And it really does make sense when looking at Luke, because when you read that third Gospel, it's very evident that Luke had a real love for the little people, for the nobodies of society, for people that others thought were unimportant, but they were obviously huge in the eyes of God. Now, Jesus is the one, ultimately, who cares for those people, and that's why Luke writes about this. And C.S. Lewis once said that in society, there's this sort of inner ring, people who are uh, very esteemed, people who have all the power. And then there's the outer ring, those who are kind of on the fringes, on the margins, those who don't have the kind of influence and prestige in society And these are the people that Pope Francis really wants us to reach and give our attention to. Not the Kardashians of the world, as it were, although they're important to God, too. God wants to reach the up-and-outs as much as he wants to reach the down-and-outs. Everybody needs God. But we do see this special care, especially in Luke's Gospel, of Jesus for the marginalized. Let's check out the inaugural sermon that Jesus preaches in the Gospel of Luke in his hometown of Nazareth. This is right after he's tempted by the evil one. Uh, Let's pick it up here in Luke chapter 4. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and a report concerning him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as was his custom on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, Heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here also in your own country. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when there came a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. 
and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. But passing through the midst of them, he went away. That, that's a remarkable passage for many different reasons, but I always find it interesting that Jesus, when he was quoting a reading from the, the scroll of the book of the prophet Isaiah, he actually stops reading at a very interesting point in the text. Uh, he says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The very next thing it says in Isaiah, Jesus didn't say that day in the synagogue. Right after it says the acceptable year of the Lord, it also says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, he left that part out, and I think that was intentional because this time right now, beginning with the ministry of Jesus, is the time of mercy, and there will come a day of vengeance for our God and judgment. That comes at the parousia, the second coming of Christ, but now is the time to get in on God's mercy, and that mercy is for everyone, including the marginalized. And Tom Schreiner writes about this, talks about the fact that after this sermon in Nazareth, which states that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, free captives, restore the sight of the blind, set the oppressed free. And by the way, not only is that from Isaiah, the Dead Sea Scrolls also speak of this expectation that the Messiah would do these things. And so this was really very much in the air at the time of Jesus. Another thing that's in Luke's gospel is this concept that the weak will also be lifted up. And the Magnificat, that beautiful prayer of Mary in Luke's gospel, and you can read this in Luke chapter 1, she says, Mary says, the Lord will scatter the proud, will cast them down from on high, from power, will exalt the lowly, lift them up. And don't forget, at the presentation, when Jesus is presented in the temple, there is the aged Simeon, and there is also the prophetess Anna. Simeon says that this son of Mary will lead to the falling and the rising of many in Israel. Many will fall because of this child, but many others will rise. And we see this when the lowly are lifted up and the proud, the haughty, are cast down. Another thing that's really interesting in Luke's gospel when it comes to how he reached out to the so-called little people of the world, to those whom society felt was really unimportant, was when we look at Jesus, the way that he treated women, it was so radical compared to how women were treated in the Greco-Roman world in Jesus' time. And you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. One of the things that Schreiner mentions in his article that, that I didn't actually know, that the Romans actually would frequently give their daughters the exact same name. So, for example, uh, they might name their daughter Julia. That, that was a very popular name in the Roman Empire. And if they had another girl, they would call her, literally, Julia II, and then Julia III. It reminds me a little bit about that fearsome boxer of the 1970s who turned into a lovable commercial pitchman, George Foreman. Remember the author of the Foreman Grill? He named all of his boys. I think he had six boys, and he called them all George. <laughs> Love that name. But the interesting thing about how this played out in the lives of women in the first century Greco-Roman world is it had this effect of saying to these girls, you're not special, you're not unique. 
This is why it's so remarkable that in Luke's gospel, women are included. They are very much woven into the fabric of Jesus's life and ministry from the beginning. Look at the birth account of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Now, if you read the gospel of Matthew, everything is pretty much laid out from Joseph's perspective. And we look at Luke and we see that Mary's perspective is really paramount. And it seems as if Luke probably interviewed her to get these firsthand eyewitness details about what happened back in the beginning. We're told twice in Luke that Mary pondered these things in her heart. The first time was when the shepherds came after Jesus was born uh, to marvel at the Messiah. And then later on, when Jesus is found in the temple after three days, and Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Says she pondered these things in her heart. That's in Luke chapter 2. So Joseph's perspective isn't really highlighted in Luke. Now, he was very important, clearly. He, he was a real father to Jesus. But Mary was crucial in the incarnation. She gave the word flesh. And she's presented as, as Pope Benedict called her, the church at the source. She is the first Christian. She's the model disciple. She's the first person to say yes to God's plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. Be it done unto me according to thy word. We can read about this in Luke chapter 1. And of course, there's also Elizabeth. That's also unique to Luke's gospel, the visitation scene, the wife of Zechariah. Now, obviously, she became the mother of John the Baptist, but for many years, uh, she was likely marginalized by many women uh, in her hometown because she was childless through no fault of her own. But unfortunately, back then, there was the sense that if a woman did not bear children who was married, she must have done something to offend the Lord. That was grossly unfair. We do know that Elizabeth was a faithful, godly woman, but she may have been part of the marginalized as well. But then Jesus, after he is born, this presentation scene I mentioned before, it's not just Simeon that's there, but there is a prophetess named Anna, and you can read about her in Luke chapter 2. Anna is also praised for decades of faithfulness in God's service, never leaving the temple night and day praying. She might have been over 100 years old at this time. And so there are so many women, so many godly women that are crucial throughout the gospel of Luke. Elijah, in, in that very sermon that Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, Jesus mentions the case of Elijah, who was ministering and caring for the widow of Zarephath. Now, as Tom Schreiner says, she this, this widow really had three strikes against her in life. She was, number one, a Gentile. Strike two, she was a woman. And a woman did not have the rights and privileges that women enjoy today. And that's mostly because of the church insisting on the dignity of women. And strike three for her was that she was a widow. She had nobody to look after and care for her. But God knew exactly where she was, never lost sight of her, and in fact, uh, sent Elijah to help her. Jesus, in the same way, also had an eye out for anybody who was hurt, anybody who was sick, anybody who seemed to be neglected, anybody who was despised. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with a fever. And of course, that's uh, led to all kinds of jokes throughout the years. Uh, we won't go there now. What about that woman? 
the famous bent-over woman that's mentioned in Luke chapter 13. For 18 long years, Luke tells us, she has been in bondage because of this physical problem. And the leader of the synagogue is incensed that Jesus wants to heal her on the Sabbath. But Jesus, maybe he was upset because Jesus, that would be considered work, you know, laying his hands on her to heal. But Jesus says, this is a daughter of Abraham as well, who suffered for 18 long years. Should she not be liberated on the Sabbath? And so, of course, we we might recall when Pope Francis was elected as Pope, uh, he, he, he used this image of the bent over woman to refer to the church. We're doing a lot of navel gazing in life and we need to focus outside on the margins, the people outside the church that need Christ. You've got to bring them in. We also hear about other women that Jesus served and ministered to uh, during his career. We think about the woman who was from Nain, her only son. She was a widow. Her husband had died. Her only son also died. This is in Luke chapter 7. Jesus raises the son from the dead. The funeral procession is in full swing. They're on the way to bury this guy, and Jesus raises him from the dead, gives him back to her mother. She literally had no one to look after her. Jesus takes compassion on her. Luke also talks about the woman who had an issue of blood, a, a hemorrhage, who reaches out to Jesus in the crowd and touches just the fringes of his garment. She believed she had faith that she would be healed, and in fact, it was the case. And Jesus tells her to make it known to everyone that her faith has made her well. And only in Luke's gospel, only in Luke do we find the account of the sinful woman who undoubtedly had a a bad reputation in that town. Jesus had been invited over to Simon the Pharisee's house for dinner. She comes in, and in front of everybody, starts weeping, her tears wash the feet of Jesus, and she wipes them with her hair. She kisses his feet, anoints them with perfume. Simon and everybody else that was there were absolutely scandalized and offended. But Jesus noted that he didn't come to save those who were self-righteous, those who thought they didn't need help from God. He wanted the sinners to come to him. With repentance, yes, they can't keep sinning, but Jesus does accept them. Now, it's not as if Jesus didn't care about uh, those who had means, those who were the elites of society. At the same incident where the woman with the issue of blood comes to him, that's in context of Jairus, the synagogue leader, asking Jesus to heal his daughter. And of course, she is reported to be dead as they're on their way to the house and Jesus raises her from death. Now, Jairus was a very powerful figure uh, in that community, but Jesus wanted to help him too. He will help anyone. But that raising of Jairus' daughter, that young girl, that was also very key to our understanding in Luke's gospel of how Jesus cares for those whom society really didn't care for. Now, of course, Jairus and his wife loved their daughter, but children in the ancient world, especially in the the Roman world, were very much... uh, they were so unimportant. They were they were considered less than nothing. They were often ignored, considered a nuisance at best. Uh, that was not the case with Jesus. He wanted the children uh, to come to him, spend time with him. He wanted to bless them. And, and this is why the apostles get, get mad at, at these moms, these parents, for bringing their children to Jesus. 
And he says, don't forbid them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We've got to turn and become like children when it comes to God. And that means trust. Children naturally trust their parents. We have to trust our Father God. So we talked earlier about uh, Anna, the prophetess that was in the temple along with Simeon. We also know that Luke is the only gospel that tells us that there are women who traveled with Jesus and supported Jesus and his apostles out of their financial means. We hear about this in Luke chapter 8. Now, we would not know this, again, if it wasn't for Luke. So there were many women who made this possible. We also hear about the very famous account of the two sisters, Mary and Martha, the siblings of Lazarus. That also is only in Luke's gospel, the scene where Mary is listening at the Lord's feet uh, to his teaching. And Martha's trying to do the cooking. She's trying to do the cleaning. She is at her wit's end, and she thinks, my sister is not helping me. I'm trying to be useful here. What Mary's doing doesn't seem that helpful. She's just soaking up the teaching of the Lord. But Jesus says, she has chosen the better part, and it won't be taken away from her. Now, this is remarkable on several levels because rabbis in the first century did not have female disciples. So the very fact that Jesus had female disciples, and this is what a disciple would do with the rabbi, sit at his feet and learn. That was remarkable in Jesus's day. He was not afraid to upset the societal apple cart. We also see, though, that in our own lives, we, we, we kind of have to combine those figures of Mary and Martha and that we have to be we're in the world, we have work to do, but we need to be contemplatives in the middle of the world, just as Martha was doing. We need to contemplate Jesus in the midst of our daily activities, kind of combine the lives of those two. So that's only in Luke's gospel. And again, in the ancient world, a lot of people thought it was a complete waste of time to educate women. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus also, though, uh, did correct when it was needed. And Schreiner mentions this too. There was, of course, the woman who said, blessed is the womb who bore you and the breast that nursed you. And Jesus says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, he's not trashing his mother or anything like that. That's in Luke chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. But even Mary, what made her so great was her obedience and sensitivity to the word of God. That's how she was able to conceive the living word uh, in her womb. And that was foundational for her. So heeding the word of God, obeying it in our lives was absolutely crucial for everybody. Jesus really understood everybody's situation. In his parables, he talks about not only the work of men, but the work of women as well. The planting of the mustard seed, right, which is something a man would normally do, plant a tree. That's followed right away by the parable of the woman who puts leaven in the flour. The parable of the lost sheep, shepherds were men in that society. The lost coin was a parable about a woman. We see Jesus talking about the two women grinding grain. Remember that in Luke chapter 17, verse 35, one is taken, the other remains. He tells about the widow who keeps going to the unjust judge and, and just wears him out with her coming until he finally grants her request 
just because he wants to get rid of her. He says, well, if she's going to be that persistent with this unjust judge, how much more do my people need to pray to their father who is always just and will hear their prayer? Jesus talked about uh, widows who didn't have any rights. Jesus also talked about the poor widow who gave literally her last meal, these these two small copper coins uh, known as leptas, and it would have been enough to buy flour to make one cake muffin. She's literally giving her last meal as she puts it in the temple treasury. No one sees this woman. They only see the guys writing the big... Uh, gigantic checks that you see given to lottery winners, you know, putting that in the temple treasury. But Jesus saw her gift, which is small in the eyes of humanity, huge in God's eyes. And he was pleased. He was very happy. When Jesus' disciples ran away, except for John, it were, were the women who stayed there, including the mother of the Lord. They prepared spices for his burial and they, they wanted to uh, to come and check things out on the third day. And they were the first to encounter the resurrection. And that's something that all the Gospels report. You simply wouldn't make that up in the ancient world in the first century. If you wanted to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah, you would not have women be the first witnesses to the resurrection. You would have had, If you were making up a story, you would have had Peter discover the risen Christ or John. But no, it was women. That's actually how it happened. A woman's testimony, sadly, was not acceptable in a court of law in the first century. And and the rabbis had some pretty harsh things to say about the testimony of women. Jesus didn't share their opinion. They had the grace of seeing the resurrected Lord. So these are just a few examples of how Jesus served those that society often overlooked because they're important in his eyes. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. We also need to talk about Jesus' love for the poor. When he talks about, uh, when the gospel talks about, the gospel of Luke talks about Jesus' concern for the so-called little people, the poor, the disenfranchised, they are right up there. Now, Luke's gospel, there is something called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, it's very very similar to the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches in Matthew. And it's not surprising because Jesus is, the core of Jesus' message about the kingdom would have been the same wherever he went. But in Luke chapter 6, we hear something that's like a beatitude. He talks about how the blessed uh, are often found among the poor. He talks about uh, Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus. This parable of the rich man and Lazarus is only found in Luke chapter 16. It wasn't the rich man who dines sumptuously every night uh, who found himself in paradise in eternity. It was Lazarus, the poor beggar at his gates. It's not to say that it's not possible for the rich to enter heaven. There are many who did have means who put those means at God's disposal. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would be shining examples of this. But at any rate, the poor are of special concern to the Lord. Think about the shepherds who appeared at his birth. Jesus did not alert the kings and palaces to his coming. Were the shepherds? They were considered roughnecks, uh, perhaps thieves, untrustworthy. But they had the privilege of seeing the infant Jesus. Lepers that Jesus healed, they had to run around and, and, and cry out, saying, "I'm unclean, unclean. I'm ritually unclean. You can't go near me." But Jesus wasn't afraid to not only heal them, but touch them. The blind 
were often cast out. Uh, there were the there's a, there's a story about Jesus healing ten lepers. Only one comes back uh, to give him thanks. Those who were possessed by demons. No one went near these people. Think about the garrison demoniac who lived in the tombs and cut himself with stones, wounded himself. He was so strong he would break his chains. No one was going near that guy, but Jesus did, and he freed him of that legion of demons. Jesus did these types of things all the time. People that society would say, there's no hope for these people. There was hope with Jesus. What about the Samaritans? There was so much tension in Jesus' day between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus does not agree with a lot of the things that they taught. Uh, Remember that conversation, this is in John's gospel, a different gospel, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He says, you Samaritans don't understand what you're doing because salvation is from the Jews. The stuff that you're teaching is not correct. Jesus doesn't uh, give his stamp of approval to any and all types of teaching about God. There is such a thing as error theologically. And there was a lot of tension between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day, but Jesus reached out to them. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, it's only in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 10. The hero of this parable is the hated Samaritan. He's the only one who does the right thing, who cares for this person who's been beaten, he's been robbed, left on the side of the road for dead. The priest didn't help him. (laughs) The Levite didn't help him. Only the Samaritan helped. So Jesus heals blind. Uh, individuals, 10 blind uh, people, only the Samaritan is the one that gives thanks to God in return. That's in Luke chapter 17. So all of this kind of sets up, as Tom Schreiner says, the Acts of the Apostles, which is really volume two of Luke's two-volume set. Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, where the gospel does spread from Judea into Samaria and then to the very ends of the earth. And there's also the tax collectors, right? People like Matthew, Levi, And he has a feast at Levi's home where all the sinners would go. Their fellow Jews hated the tax collectors, people like Matthew, people like Zacchaeus. They saw them as traitors. They worked for the hated occupying Romans. They would overcharge, skim some money off the top, pocket the extra. Most people thought they were just to be shunned. But Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. He's a little guy, has to climb a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus sees him. He says, I'm coming to your house today. Of course, Zacchaeus has this big conversion experience, pays back fourfold anything he's defrauded people of. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house too, for this man is also a son of Abraham. That really sums up the ministry of Jesus in Luke. If we repent, if we turn back to God, we can be forgiven. That is great news. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Everybody is created in the image of God. Everybody matters to him. He sees everybody, and they should matter to us too. Everyone should matter to us because Jesus loves them. And he also loves you and me. He cares for us. Don't forget about that. Thanks for joining me today on The Faith Explained. I'm your host, Cale Clark. If you missed an episode, you can always catch them in podcast form on the relevant radio app. I'll join you in the next one, and I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central right here on Relevant Radio for The Kale Clark Show. Until next time, God bless you.